listening to BC Museum Portraits, and I'm project manager Spencer Stewart. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Executive Director of the Courtney and District Museum and Archives, Deborah Griffiths. Deb, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with me today about the the Courtney and District Museum and Archives. How did you get involved with, with museums? I was involved in my childhood because we moved a lot when I was growing up, lived in big cities. And so one of the places that my parents took us was to the museum, whatever it might be. And there were quite a few that we saw. So it was a, a point of reference for me. I've just always been interested in place and what are the people doing there and how did they get there and so it's always been of interest to me. I've worked in the Okanagan, I was at the Kelowna Museum. I did a work stint at the RBCM in conservation and I've been here for more years than I want to mention. So I've been in the museum business for a long time. What's the history of the Courtney and District Museum? What were its early days like? How how did it get started? It started in 1961. It's 60 years old today. And they have a really interesting background and mandate which has affected what we're able to do today. And they began the organization including from the start a member from Comox First Nation which continues today and it's the the mandate also has a lot of depth in terms of it being cultural and natural history and as the years went by as some paleontological discoveries were made in the area we had the privilege of seeing the change of the arc of visitorship to the museum it moved to mainly settlement history over to a much more international and diverse audience who then could delve into local history a little bit more. So that's the short story of the Historical Society. And right from the very first board meeting that I went to with this organization, there was this acceptance amongst the members on the board that they were of different political views and different interest but they all liked each other and they all they all got along which was unusual you know they, they, it was not highly polarized in fact they were proud of the fact that they just didn't agree at all on some things and, and so that was part of the essence of the nature of the the board and it, it still continues today there's been some you know rough spots as development happened and changes were made and as more staff came on. What was the nature of the collecting focus prior to the involvement with paleontology and into that development? And how did that come to uh, fruition? It was the same. There were people who were interested in fossils. And in fact, Catherine Capes, who I believe was one of the first female archaeologists in Canada, was on the board. And then there were people who were interested in cultural history and in diversity in cultural history. So that theme was set all the way through. Mm -hmm. 
There was an acknowledgement that this area has fossils. There's, there's coal mining here, there's interesting earth science features in the area, a lot of glacial moraine, just a, a lot of different environments that, that we have here. And early on in the province, not early on in settlement years, in, in the late uh, 1800s, there were discussions about fossil finds in the colonist and and then other finds were made and meanwhile coal mining was going on the whole time and in the late 1980s Mike Trask discovered an elasmosaur on the Puntledge River hmm. which is about 13 meters long and it's one of the largest marine reptiles in in the province so that required that the museum do a great deal of work with the Royal Tyrrell Museum and with other natural history museums and paleontological centers across Canada and into the States. And we also have international researchers who come in because we've had other type specimens found and other discoveries made by amateur paleontologists. So the museum's been at the center of pushing paleo in the province and that elasmosaur that was found was voted the provincial fossil but it hasn't been designated yet. What happened from that is that we started to see a much more diverse audience come in, families, people who were interested in natural history and we would get questions from funders as to why we were doing that. And it was obvious in the stats and in the original intention of the mandate that this was a fit for what the mandates were, that there's diversity, that there's that this appeals to a, a wide spectrum of people and it's cultural and natural history. Mm-hmm. Because natural history provides a platform for all human settlement. Yeah. It was surprising to see that some funders push back on it because there was a, a trend at the time that we might be seen as a specialty museum, like a, a natural history museum would perhaps not be funded. So that was all, always the question, are you doing too much of this? And we kept thinking, we've got all these people coming in from all over and they're really interested and they're really engaged. So how do we make the most of it? Mm-hmm. What are some other stories that are represented in the Courtney Museum and Archives? What are some of the other holdings that are quite strong? The other holdings that are quite strong are archival items. And we've just, in, in terms of special projects, we've just completed Step Into Wilderness, which was just published this last year, and Watershed Moments. I mean, Watershed Moments came out in 2017, I think, and it was with Harvard Publishing. And this is, the, the books are really about the images in the collection. And that's probably one of the strongest points of the collection. And the way that people can relate to other people's stories in the past. And we were fortunate to have a number of professional photographers that worked here, lived here, or some came to the area and produced beautiful images with glass plate negatives. So this is just a a touch of what we have in the collection and the 
curatorial staff, all of us, we're pretty well all curatorial staff here. It gives us an opportunity to look at the collection in depth and to really be able to see what might strike the public in terms of being able to relate to stories from the past. How did you amass these photo collections? It, it's a combination of a number of different things. We, we had one whole collection that was donated by the people who took over the photography business for one of the photographers, Charles Sealance. The gauge images were glass plate negatives and they came to the museum in, in different ways from different people. And then we have images where we might just have one from a family, but they mainly all came in from people who wanted to make sure that the collections were held and cared for. And we're really fortunate to be able to work with them. The photographer's artwork is incredibly beautiful. What they capture in people's faces and what is in a picture. Also what we get excited about seeing, and sometimes that's not a normal, uh, just a, a, a normal portrait photograph. That's one that we have is uh, a picture of two boys selling newspapers on a corner and we can see a pile of rubble behind them that is from a building being torn down. So what did that landscape look like? And that way we can get an idea in our minds of what the environment was what the, those people were dealing with. What did it look like after the fire? So some of those images we were able to put into these books and it's been surprising how, how good a response we've had to them. What are some stories that you want to bring to the fore from the photos and from the documents within the museum? I, I think that any interpretation of history is so subjective as to what images you have or who could afford a camera. We have to ask those questions and I think it, it brings those things out and we need to discuss those. The great thing is, is that stories change. And over time, we gather more information, so this, the stories are fleshed out more. And, th and that's the sort of progress that working in a museum and researching, too, is just layer after layer of information that builds the story more. And I think rather than just individual stories, we're really looking at the environment. What was the social environment? What was the cultural environment? What kind of acceptance was there? I feel really fortunate that those people at that time in the 60s came up with that mandate mm -hmm. because it holds strong today. Do you actively uh, acquire material for the collection or is it mostly based on donation? I think we're trying to catch up so much that we don't. We have such a backlog of information. Sometimes we will ask for something. We certainly pay attention to what people have to say about their stories and what the information they might have to give to the museum that we can put out on a larger platform so that people understand cultural or natural history more broadly. So I wouldn't say that we actively acquire. We do actively acquire information mm. rather than artifacts because it really forms a strong groundwork for anything that we're talking about. How do you go about building an exhibition? We have 
permanent exhibitions and we have changing exhibitions. So we go about building, say, a permanent exhibition. I'll talk about paleontology, for instance. We look at what kind of impact it might have for the people coming to the region. Okay, because we have a regional mandate. And so what do we want, what kind of information do we want to provide to people so that it's as broad as possible? so they get some information on the paleo and acknowledgement of indigenous history and how long and far back that goes and then move into really chronologically we move through those areas one thing that we're really trying to do is not to separate out areas so much not to separate out cultures so much and right now we're going through a remaking of the uh, permanent exhibition areas to do that. We've just finished paleo and have gone and moving into human history now. So I think there will be quite a few changes over the next two years. Mm -hmm. It's really trying to provide a broad regional concept for all of the things that I just talked about, right. about the mandate. So. That's another thread that we have for exhibitions, is staying with that mandate. Mm -hmm. And then trying to pick out things in the artifact collection or in the archival collection that really pertain to that, and not just pertain to that, but will go deeper. That we may have some letters, we may have a love story, we, things that people will really feel and really be able to relate to. And there are so many examples of people coming to the museum and, again, it's a privilege to actually work with people when they're working with something like their family letters. Or there's someone who has uh, preempted land and writes for four years to their beloved in England and describes in great detail what's happening in the community and what's happening with the creamery being formed and where the separators were coming from. All of that information comes out of family letters, right? So we try to provide as much of that information as we can in the galleries. In terms of changing exhibitions, it's always nice to have some money to, to bring in exhibitions from other museums. And in the spring we're going to be bringing in our living languages and we will then work with people in the community to really grow certain aspects of that and make more people welcome. What are some stories or some histories that you're wanting to explore through the collection in the coming months and uh, years? Mainly right now we are taking the content from the books that we've done. Mm -hmm. It's surprising to me how much impact they've had. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's coming from a regional museum. Normally you might see a full-color production coming from the RBCM or from one of the larger institutions across Canada. Mm -hmm. There's something about the books that have really struck a chord and I think it's because they're coming from a regional museum. Mm -hmm. And that's how we have stepped up putting out the information. And I think it allows people to actually get the book and then give the book to family members. It's not just a book that has pictures of people who live here and are from here. They're books about, first of all, people originally living here for thousands of years and then people coming in from all over the world. So 
is taking regional history and giving it a different context mm. so that it's not just centric to the area. And I think that might be why they have been a successful way to get content out. Mm. And from that production, we can take that content out, put it into the newsletter, put it into the newspaper, put it into different levels of our media. And it's deeply researched. So it's good for a few years until more research is done and then we move on from that. But that's why I'm saying that that's been a very different experience for me working in museums. And it's actually had a different impact than exhibitions. Mm. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Mm. And the only reason why I say that is because I think we could use a lot more funding for regional museums to be able to really show the level of content that they have in their collections rather than spending most of their time having to support the collections and deal with the collections. Mm -hmm. But to be able to actually put that out to the public mm -hmm. is really something. Mm -hmm. So. What are some changes that you're seeing in the community presently and in, into the future that you have an eye on as a new chapter in the story of mm -hmm. Courtney and the surrounding mm -hmm. area? Mm -hmm. One thing that I think is really interesting and cool is that, again, the natural history thing is something that is woven into pretty well everything that's happening in a community, especially now because there's so many younger people who are so involved in biking and being outside and being in forests. And it's not that they're doing something different than people before, but here there's a high population of younger people who are very interested in the outdoors. So I think it allows us to make different connections you know, to connect over to organizations and, and other bodies within the region who are really sincerely working on things like that. Just even working on the Alpine images in, in these projects has given us an opportunity to engage with runners and people who are hiking up into the mountains. And so there are um, a lot of opportunities, I think, for outdoor interpretation of what's happening in the area. And then again, that mandate comes back. It's just, it was a genius move on their part. What was what was the approach with setting up a mandate that was it was just was the broad people and, and inclusive? That, it was the individuals and the mm. individual intents. So, I would say that more than half of the people were very engaged in the outdoors, mm. and 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 they were all people who were very concerned about the community mm. and very accepting of people from all walks of life. They just, they, they just were different. Mm. Um, and I think it, it was the individual. And we've done uh, in-depth research on some of the individuals. And one of them actually donated a home in seven acres to the museum. Mm. That was Catherine Capes. Mm. So she was a major influence. Chief Andy Frank was on the board. Robert Clifton was on the board. And just people of, of different backgrounds with different interests. What are your uh, hopes and aspirations for the, uh, the Courtney Museum going into the future? Looking back and looking forward at the same time, I think that the corporate record and that mandate um, really need to be carried through. 
And I, I think that will happen by us being quite vigilant about how we're storing the original information for the, for the museum, for the historical society, and making sure that we refer back to that. Fortunately, it's so broad that we can morph that mandate into moving forward with how people are moving forward in society. Mm and hopefully staying relevant, because I, I think that's one of the most important things. I think that that diversity and ethics are extremely important within the mandate and, and what we relate to the public. It's not complex, fortunately. It's having good intentions. Deb, thank you very much for sitting down with me and, and, and speaking about the, the museum and, and these projects, these two books, Step Into Wilderness, as well as Watershed Moments. And the, uh, and the various other works you're doing in the region. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Tayu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.